She Dares the Devil looked awfully brave in winning the honeybee over the winter. The Kentucky Oaks will be next for her, but even she is not nearly as brave as one of her owners. We'll talk with Audrey Lowry. Plus, is there a better way to handle what we now call claiming horses and claiming races? A way that benefits the horses and their owners? There might be, and it's a system already in place elsewhere in the world. We'll discuss all of that on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're about to move in. They roll side. And they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch. It's a hip-hopping finish! This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us, which might just include the rocket scientists at America's Best Racing, who last year chose not to include us in their Fan Choice Awards in the Best Podcast category. Well, that's okay. The co-founders of Google once tried to sell that search engine in its early days to the CEO of another search engine, Excite, for $750,000. Excite passed on the idea. Hey, America's Best Racing, I'm just wondering, how'd that work out? The Kentucky Oaks is shaping up as an even more compelling race than the Kentucky Derby, where Tis the Law will be an overwhelming favorite. The Oaks might come down to a match race between Gamine, winner of the Acorn and Test, and Swiss Skydiver, who took the Alabama and Gulfstream Park Oaks and finished second against the boys in the bluegrass. Art collector beater. But... If you want to consider anyone else in the field for this race, how about this little lady? She dares the devil, ratcheting up the pressure outside second, and we have a new leader at the top of the stretch, and it's She Dares the Devil. She Dares the Devil comes off the turn, leading by two and a half lengths, impeccable styles up in the second. Miss T2 is fully extended, one furlong to go. She Dares the Devil has a lead by two lengths. As they come down to the finish, it's She Dares the Devil in the Indiana Oaks. Before that win in the Indiana Oaks, She Dares the Devil took the honeybee at Oaklawn Park and finished third in the fantasy in the spring. She Dares the Devil has an interesting ownership group also. We've seen how the little guys, like Tis the Law's Sacatoga Stable, can take on and beat heads of state, like Sheikh Mohammed's Godolphin Stable. But how about this? A little guy teaming up with a head of state. Part of She Dares the Devil's ownership group includes Cotter Racing, which comes from that country's sovereign wealth fund, and Captain Autry Lowry, who is a firefighter in Benton, Louisiana. He operates as Big Aught Farms, and we are pleased to welcome Captain Lowry here to win the gate. Let's start with She Dares the Devil. She's hit the board in eight of her nine career starts, and her only off-the-board finish was a fourth on turf, which seems not to be her preferred surface. How do you evaluate her? Um, she's uh, been very fun feeling to be a part of. She is just the gift that keeps on giving. By far the best horse I've ever personally been associated with. Talent-wise, um, I think she's going to be competitive with some of these other fillies that have been getting a lot of the attention so far this year. She continues to get better each and every day, and I'm ready for 
the first Friday in September to uh, see how competitive everything is. Is it still weird saying that the first Friday in September? It is. It's very weird. I almost messed up. (laughs) (laughs) I almost said the first Friday in May. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely different, but it's something I could only dream about saying prior to investing in her. So, uh, it's, it's an absolute pleasure regardless of what month it is. How does a firefighter from a relatively small community in Louisiana come to be on the same team with the government of Cotter? Well, me and my buddy, Staten Flurry, we had a couple of horses we were looking at in the November sale. And they went for more than we were willing to pay for them. So I used to own a share in Daredevil. And they sold him to Turkey. And I told him, I said, this is the best filly that Daredevil has to date. I said, it'd be neat to have a, be a part of this filly since she is the best filly that they're the best horse that Daredevil has produced up to this date and time. And at that point in time, I think, uh, Clay share contacted stating about it, about the filly. And it just kind of went from there. Um, it all happened very quick. It was just a matter of minutes and this entire process, this entire thing played out. And, um, from the first phone call to actually owning her was about 10 minutes. How did you come to be involved in racing in the first place? I started going out to the racetrack at a very young age, probably 13 or 14, here at Louisiana Downs in Bossier City, Louisiana. And I've just kind of fell in love with it ever since. I just appreciate the effort that the horses put out, the drive, the determination of some of these horses. If you get a champion horse, it's absolutely amazing to me to sit there and watch these animals compete and with all their heart, give everything they have every time they race. That's, I'm fascinated by it. Captain Autry Lowry, co-owner of Kentucky Derby Hopeful, She Dares the Devil, joins us here on In the Gate. What has it been like for you and your colleagues to do your jobs fighting fires during this global pandemic? It's been very challenging at times. You know, we have to take a lot of precautions if we think that we may have an exposure there are a lot of precautions that we have to take to make sure that we do not bring it back to the fire station and or any other patients that we may run on. But it's definitely been different. And this may be the new norm. Uh, we've established some protocols at the fire, fire department. And um, to this day, we haven't changed them. So we're still we're still treating this as it's very real, which it is. Tell our listeners, as you were telling me before we started recording this, about some of the things you've gone through recently and how lucky you are to be here. In 2011, I had an injury on the fire department call. Uh, We had a fire, structure fire, and I ended up jumping off of a ladder, injured my neck, did therapy for a period of time. I had a herniated disc got injections and that did not seem to work. So surgery was my only answer. And at that time I woke up from surgery and my tongue was hanging out of my mouth. Obviously a complication went wrong during the surgery. Approximately a year later, had another surgery to repair the nerve. 11 months after that, I had my third surgery on my neck, taking out another disc. So at this time I was three through five 
in my neck. I've, I had problems with it at that time. I did not fuse at that time. So I had a fourth surgery. They went in posteriorly on my neck the fourth time. And, you know, I've, I have an abnormal looking neck in the back, but, you know, everything's working as good as it's going to get. So I'm extremely happy to have what I have. I've been blessed. Never thought I would get back to the point to where I am now. And many times I was told to take a medical retirement, but I just absolutely refused to because I wasn't going to give up that easy. But it was more than that, right? You said there was some mental health issues involved. I did. I battled some um, depression a couple of years ago in 2018, if I'm not mistaken. Went and got treatment for it. Did not realize I was in depression. It, it snuck up on me. I guess everybody around me could see it but me. And when I was approached, I made a quick decision to go get assistance. Because in my line of work, I think it's more rampant than people understand. I think a lot of people are intimidated to discuss it, but it is very real. Depression, PTSD, there's so many different uh, mental health issues, illnesses that firemen battle. Firemen, policemen, first responders in general. And uh, I would like to be the foremost person that would tell them to go seek treatment. I, I, I hope to see the day that your first responders are not intimidated by going out and asking for help and getting assistance. Uh, there's special programs out there for them. I also would like to see them use the equine therapy in this process. It's very beneficial. Like I said, it was very moving for me to be a part of this. And I've been a horse owner for 18 years at the time. I was up there in Maryland getting receiving my treatment. I did not purchase into this horse until after I got out of therapy. And I continue, I'm continuing therapy now, but after I got out of my treatment, so I guess I'm living proof that you can get out of treatment and still make some of the better decisions you've made in your life. Because at that point in time is when I purchased, she dares the devil. Now I know depression is not being sad. It's a clinical issue. It's much deeper than that. What role does being around horses, which we know clinically has been used in therapy, what role do horses play in treating your depression? Um, you're exactly right. Depression is not necessarily being sad because I never walked around sad and just feeling sorry for myself, but it changed my personality. Working with the horses, I did equine therapy while I was in treatment in, in Maryland. You learn how to trust again. You know, uh, one of my issues that I dealt with, I had a hard time trusting. Uh, I felt like the world was against me. You learn to have faith in, you learn to have faith in, and something besides yourself. You think you're taking on the entire world by yourself. And slowly but surely, working with these horses, if you handle them and you nurture them and you take care of them, they trust you as much as you trust them. And that's a very, very soothing feeling. I was actually impressed 
I went there and I had been a horse owner for many years and I learned a lot about horses while I was up there in Maryland that I did not even know about. Like what? I thought I knew a lot about horses. I didn't, I, I knew about the racing end of it. I didn't know about personality and demeanor of horses because thoroughbreds are typically high strung. Uh, these horses were rehab horses. You could lead them around without even having a lead on them. They would follow you. And it was all about the way that you handled the horses. They can sense your fear. They can tell if you trust them or not. And it was I was actually amazed because I've never personally had an experience like that with a horse. All of my horses' dealings have been with racing or out in the pasture or, or breeding horses. And it's, and it's completely different than anything I've ever been exposed to. Do you look at your racehorses a little differently now from what you did before? I do. I've always had a great appreciation for them. This, this uh, being involved with She Dares the Devil is extremely special. I think I'm appreciating it more than maybe I would have prior to getting treatment. It's been unbelievable. And there again, as a the horse will never know how much I actually appreciate her. She dares the devil, looks for a way through. Alta's award to the outside. Alta's award takes the lead. She dares the devil, splits horses for Joe Talamo. Alta's award, that's the switch leads. She dares the devil, Alta's award. She dares the devil. Well, she'll take her first crack at a grade one race when she takes on Swiss Skydiver and Gamine. How do you feel about taking them on? They're definitely very good horses. You know, they deserve all the credit that they've been getting. A lot of publicity, but you got Swiss Skydiver, Gamine, and Speech are kind of the three. They think it's basically going to be a three-horse race. And, um, you know, I'm anxious to see. This field improved quite a bit the last two races that she's had. And I don't think we've reached her full capability yet. She's steadily improving. And I'm ready to see the horses line up and race. By no means am I making any promises on who's going to win and who's going, where they're going to finish up. But I would, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing the day that they do get the starting gate and cross the finish line. Do you plan on being there? Absolutely. I wouldn't miss it for the world. How many in your group will you be allowed to bring? Well, the ticket issue is or an issue right now, so we don't know how many tickets that we're going to get. So that's kind of up in the air at this point in time. But I can promise you I will be there. If I have to stand outside, wherever I have to be, I will be at Churchill Downs that day at post up. Captain Autry Lowry of the Benton, Louisiana Fire Department, we wish you the best of luck and continued good health this month, next month, and way on into the future. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Is the North American system of claiming races putting a horse's welfare at unusual risk? And if so, what would be a better solution? We'll examine those questions when the In the Gate podcast continues. Welcome back to In the Gate. 
As you may know, each summer since 1953, the Jockey Club here in the United States has held an annual conference on urgent issues regarding the horse racing industry. This year's conference included a report from Sal Sinatra, Vice President and General Manager of the Maryland Jockey Club, about the connection between running horses and claiming races and the long-term welfare of those horses. For example, you claim a horse for $15,000 and then run that horse every couple of weeks without enough time to rest up to be ready to run because the purses you can win are inflated by casino revenue. During the conference, Sinatra said that, in theory, the added purse money would be good for horsemen, allowing them to pay bills and maybe invest in buying more horses. But, Sinatra says, the picture has not turned out that way. Instead, we have created an arena that has become a race to the bottom, with horses being dropped in claiming price and repeatedly claimed as a matter of arbitrage. And this doesn't even take into account what these bottom feeders, to paraphrase Sinatra's term, might do with these horses once they can't make money at the lower claiming levels. So what can be done about this? One solution Sal Sinatra proposed is dropping the claiming system altogether and adopting what's called the ratings system, which is used in Europe and Australia. Basically, just as every horse gets a speed figure for every race, which you can see in the horse's past performance chart, a horse running in what we now call a claiming, allowance, or starter level race would receive an overall rating that accounts for all of its races. That rating would determine what level of racing a horse could participate in. An interesting idea, but would it work here? And would it improve the future of these horses? Well, let's get some perspective from someone who's trained both here in the States and elsewhere around the world. So we welcome here for the first time on In the Gate trainer Owen Hardy. He grew up in Ireland, started training there when he was 16, moved here to the States and has trained in California ever since, more than 20 years later. So, Mr. Hardy, what do you think of the idea of a ratings system in America compared with the current claiming system? I think a different avenue. I don't think it should be all a handicapping system, but I think we could have a healthy mix of both. I think there is a, a definite need for a raising system, and I think there is a need for the claiming game as well. People survive on, on claiming horses. People who can't afford to go to sales and spend a lot of money can find a nice horse in the claiming ranks. And also for the people who've invested some money in a horse that's potentially not going to come around until it's had a few races or turned three or gone a little bit older. You know, not, not every horse is going to be precocious and can be ready to win and perform at its best on its first, second, or third start as a two-year-old. So there ought to be an avenue to be, be able to develop those horses and give them time and give an owner some incentive to to hang in there rather than ask them to go to the sales and spend a 150 200 300 whatever it costs to buy a horse that you believe in your heart and sold it's a nice horse but because he hasn't actually turned out immediately and now you're forced to run that horse for a claiming price in order to see some return on it only to watch somebody else reap the rewards of your hard work so how would those two things coexist a rating system and a claiming system well that's for somebody smarter than me but that as it works in Europe, I believe, the raising system is determined on, I guess you get three races, I think it is, and the handicapper assesses your ability and then gives you a number 
dependent on how you've performed in those three races. And then you run off of that number. Speaking of Europe, back in 2014, the respected Scottish veterinarian, Dr. Tim Parkin, said that horses whose claiming price drops after its most recent start have an increased risk for suffering a catastrophic injury in racing or training. What do you think of that? Um, well, I didn't read the study, and I didn't know it wasn't aware of that until now, but I, I think it comes as no secret. You know, people have become a lot more cognizant of uh, as to how these horses are getting hurt, and I think what happened at Santa Anita last year, and, and at Saratoga has shone a light on, on our game, and people are now being a lot more critical and a lot more scrutinous before horses run, and a horse that's dropping significantly off a good performance will probably come under extensive scrutiny and what potentially isn't going to be allowed run. So it, it, there's probably a lot of truth to his, to his comments, but also there's people who, who play that claiming game and play it well for a living. And, you know, it's like playing poker sometimes. I'm certainly not advocating for people to try and, you know, try and take advantage of a, of a sore horse and dump it on somebody else. But I'm just pointing out some of the, the aspects of the game that some people possibly won't think of. I have heard that. Horsemen are told that if they lose a horse to a claim or re retirement, but don't fill that stall within two weeks, they lose the stall. So what kind of pressure does that put on trainers to keep horses running? You know, maybe, maybe that was a problem several years ago. But, you know, of all the racetracks I go to nowadays, I, I've certainly never heard that. I've never heard anybody getting pressure to do that. And there just isn't the horse population out there anymore to stick a knife in the guy's back and tell him, hey, you better fill that store or you're going to lose it. There isn't just a steady flow of horses waiting at the gate to get in. So I certainly haven't heard that before. Trainer Owen Hardy joining us here on In the Gate. So how does the rating system in Europe and Australia versus the claiming system here in the States, do you think, affect these horses' futures when they're finished racing? Well, I really... I don't see how it's going to affect us positively one way or the other. I think people are recognize that these horses aren't just a means to an end. And once you're done with them and the horse is hurt or injured or whatever, then, you know, to hell with the horse, send it to the kiloton. I think that whole concept of our futures, maybe there's a, that's a very, very small mindset that still approach the game with that in mind. But I think the, the bulk of the, owners and trainers and horsemen out there only want the best things for the horse at the end of the day. And I just see more and more horses being rehomed horses that have been hurt or horses that just aren't going to match up on the racetrack. And there's a huge demand for those horses. So I, I think things were very different 10 years ago than they are today. And the public perception of our business has made us please ourselves and you know, I could be very naive, but I just don't see that kind of thing going on anymore. I want to get back to something you mentioned earlier. You know, owners sometimes enter horses in claiming races with the intent of getting the horse claimed by someone else, making a little money from the sale and not having to pay that horse's bills any longer. In Europe, where that system does not exist, do private purchases of these horses fill the vacuum of those claiming transactions? Yes, in Europe, there's a there's a lot more buying and selling of horses 
There's a huge market for European horses in Hong Kong. And if a horse is sound, then you can rest assured you're going to get a, a very healthy offer from, from Hong Kong, amongst other places, but Hong Kong in particular. And, you know, there's some man's precious, another man's treasure. Not to say that the horses are trash, but, you know, if you're a bigger owner with bigger investments and this horse isn't necessarily going to pan out for you, doesn't mean it can't pan out for somebody else. And there's a huge market over there. It's starting to become more and more prevalent here in the States, these horses and training sales. But that's a very, very common commodity in, in Europe. They would have these very large horses and training sales throughout the year. And horses are getting traded back and forth. So, yeah, long answer to your question. How does the evolution of the claiming system affect the smaller trainers as opposed to the larger operations? Well, there's a big market for claiming horses. It's the bread and butter horse for a lot of people. Not everybody's playing at the lofty levels of Bob Baffert, Todd Fletcher, Mark Cassie, Chad Brown. And there's a lot of very, very good horsemen that, that make a living with those bottom-end horses. Uh, they're very good horsemen. They keep them going, they keep them sound, they keep them happy. And they might be winning Group 1 races, but they're certainly winning races and making a living out of it. In the Jockey Club Roundtable conference, Sal Sinatra of the Maryland Jockey Club called the claiming system a race to the bottom, claiming a horse in order to run it at a much lower class for a purse that's much higher than the value of the horse itself. Would a rating system prevent a race to the bottom, as he put it? Um, well, it certainly would, because those horses aren't running. They can only run at a certain level. Depending on what the horse is, the bottom rating is, I'm not sure what it is. It might be 40, might be 50. So those horses race at different distances for horses rated 0 to 50. So, and so if you've got a horse that's rated 110, it's got a problem. You want to get rid of it. You, you can't claim the horse in the first place, and that horse is ineligible to run against horses rated 0 to 50. So I, I don't necessarily think there's a race to the bottom. I, I think the mindset of people has changed dramatically, especially over the last 18 months, uh, over the last two years, three years, whatever. But people are way more cognizant of our industry and our horses and, and how we're perceived. And I think the last thing anybody wants to see on the racetrack is a horse get hurt a horse band off. It's the absolute most negative aspect of our sport. And I think we're going to see less and less of that. There's a lot more scrutiny, a lot more eyes on these horses. I think at the end of the year, when the injury data info is released, we're going to see significant improvement in that. You know, maybe that was the case five, 10 years ago, but I certainly don't think it's the case now. Um, when you do get those huge purses, it does it makes it easier for you to win a race. So you've got a horse that's worth 20. You can run him for 12, 5, or 10, win the race, and with that huge pot, if you do lose the horse, you've still made money. I mean, at the end of the day, it is a business. But just because you put that horse in there, dropped him in, doesn't mean that the horse is injury-prone or is carrying a significant injury and his career is ending. Like I said, it's, it's poker. People play this game, and you know your opposition, who you're playing against, and what they do, and I keep saying we're, we're placing ourselves a hell of a lot better than we were two years ago. I do think there's a, a healthy place 
for handicap racing in America. I just think it's, it should be a third option. I don't think you can completely eliminate training. And I think it's going to be you know, it's going to be a gradual thing. You can't just say, well, we're eliminating claiming races. We're going to start handicap racing at the end of September. You know, it's going to, it's going to take a while for people to get their heads around what exactly is going on. But I do think it has a place in American racing. Very interesting perspective here as this issue will continue to be discussed. Thank you so much for your perspective, Mr. Hardy. All right. Thank you for having me. Our thanks to Owen Hardy and Captain Autry Lowry. Green Grotto was a blue-collar horse. His owner drove a truck. Neither belonged in elite company. But three years ago, they won the Grade 1 Carter Handicap. Several poor runs later, it was time to say, c'est la vie. Most horses take well to the farm, the pampered life for them. But poor old Green Grotto, he missed the track. He'd mope was hard to handle until his owner had an idea and reintroduced Green Grotto to his tack. The nine-year-old was being prepped for a return to action last fall when word got out on social media. The outcry there forced Green Grotto's owners to scrap the whole idea, no adding to his page on Wikipedia. But once again the horse grew sullen, so at the age of 10, Green Grotto indeed had one more day in the sun. This month he finished last at Monmouth, so that really will be it. I hope he'll view retirement as fun. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us. And by others, we also mean the geniuses that run America's Best Racing. Maybe they'll include us in their Best Podcast category in the Fan Choice Awards like they should have done last year. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.